the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on the new AM 990. And FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We got a big hour ahead of us here. Now, we get on the air because of the engineering skills of Gabe. I mean, he goes by one name. That's all you need. Andrew Herdliska does the producing. And I'm very pleased to uh, introduce to you Douglas Moo. He is a, a professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. His book is out, A Theology of Paul and His Letters. The Gift of the New Realm in Christ. Doug, welcome to Orlando. I hope things are well with you. Thanks, yes. The weather's not quite as good here in the Chicago area as it is down by you, I suspect, but uh, I'm doing well. Thank you. Good, Doug. Well, I don't want to brag, but it's about 80 degrees today. And Yeah, I, do, I don't think I needed to hear that. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll pass. We'll pass. Tell me about your book. Yeah, it's a long time in the making. It took me a long time to write. Uh, the study of the Apostle Paul, of course, has fascinated scholars and theologians for centuries. A lot is being written on Paul these days. Many of his issues are very hotly discussed. Uh, so uh, I feel the privilege to have written a book about Paul and his teaching, uh, divided in two parts, basically. The first part goes through each of the letters of Paul, describing its theology and content. And then the second part sort of synthesizes many of the key themes in the thinking of Paul. Doug, I want to start with part one, the introductory issues. I want you to cover them for us. Approaching Paul's theology and the shape of Paul's thought. Yeah, one of the questions that you have to ask yourself when you're studying Paul is how do we make sense of all 13 letters together? You know, Paul did not write a systematic theology. Uh, what God left for us are these occasional letters written to different churches at different times, dealing with different issues. So trying to figure out how to take all 13 of the letters and bring them together uh, to see what their coherent message of all of those letters might be, that's uh, so quite a, a task. So you, uh, I'm trying to lay out there in those opening chapters the way I think that we kind of need to go about doing that. Let's uh, dive into the theology of the letters uh, your, your third chapter, Paul, missionary theolo- uh, theologian. Uh, let's start with that topic. Sure. Um, I think, the, again, that, that title reflects my understanding that uh, the best way to understand Paul is as a missionary. That's where he mm-hmm. spent most of his life. That's when he wrote most of the letters, uh, preaching the gospel in different places around the Mediterranean world, uh, and, of course, trying to help those early churches figure out how to live in faithful ways for Christ by developing theology. Theology not in an academic sense, but very practically oriented 
theology so that people would understand who Christ is, what he's done, and how they're, they're supposed to live. I want you to, uh, well, I'm going to lay the book out that he wrote, and then you explain it, and then we'll move to the next one. Uh, let's, let's start with Galatians. What can you tell us? Uh, that's the earliest letter of Paul, in my view. There are differences of that, but I think it's the earliest letter Paul wrote. And here he's writing to recently converted Gentile Christians who are being told they have to put themselves under the law of Moses in order truly to be saved. And Paul is responding to that and saying, no, you don't need to put yourself under the law. Christ is entirely sufficient. Uh, as long as you have faith in him uh, and cling to him, uh, you, are, you are in, as it were, and don't need to add the law to what you're doing. First Thessalonians. Yeah, First Thessalonians, written again, uh, probably uh, in the context of Paul's uh, uh, second missionary journey, recorded in the book of Acts. Um, here he's writing to a church recently converted and suffering persecution, and Paul's encouraging them about uh, their relationship to Christ, uh, telling them to hang on despite the persecution, and also getting into eschatology quite a lot, because apparently the people there were uncertain about what was going to happen when brothers and sisters in Christ died before Christ returned. Uh, Doug Moo is our guest. He is a professor of New Testament at Wheaton College in the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, where are we? Second Thessalonians, right? Fill us in. Yeah, it's a pretty quick follow-up on First Thessalonians, actually. Apparently, the letter Paul wrote first did not answer all the questions, and other questions arose, so he quickly wrote another one. Uh, again, eschatology is the focus of the book. Uh, also, trying to encourage and comfort the Christians who are continuing to suffer persecution. First Corinthians. Yeah, it's one of the more interesting letters of Paul. Of course, it's pretty long, and there are a lot of different issues Paul deals with there. Here's a church that's really just compromised with the culture way too much, uh, and so Paul is trying to bring them back into a faithful response to Christ and a whole series of issues that they were dealing with and were very uncertain about. Second Corinthians. Yeah, here's a, a letter where apparently one the, the, the church at Corinth, after 1 uh, Corinthians, had some false teachers uh, arise there, uh, questioning Paul's authority. So 2 Corinthians is one of the more personal letters of Paul, which he's uh, trying to describe his calling as an apostle, his authority, uh, why the Corinthians basically should listen to him rather than these other teachers who come along. Doug, here's the big book. It's called Romans. Yeah, it's, of course, the more famous letter of Paul in terms of its theology, justly so, I think. Here Paul writes to a church he's not visited before. He's kind of introducing himself to them by explaining his theology, laying it out for them, uh, particularly on the issue that uh, was so significant in the early church, that is Gentiles, and how Gentiles would be included in the new covenant people of God. Colossians. Colossians uh, is another church Paul did not found or visit. Apparently one of his own converts founded the church, and that convert is asking for Paul's help. Paul, help me. I've got false teachers who have arisen here. And some of you might be hearing a theme here. A lot of the letters of Paul are directed to false teaching that has arisen. 
people getting off base and Paul having to bring them back to the truth of Christ and the gospel. Philemon. Yeah, Philemon, a personal note, of course, very short, written to a slave owner called Philemon, whose runaway slave Onesimus has uh, encountered Paul. Paul has brought him to Christ. Now Paul is sending Onesimus back and kind of explaining to Philemon, the owner of Onesimus, uh, the situation and the background and what he would like to do to incorporate his former slave, Onesimus, uh, into the body of Christ as a brother in Christ. Ephesians. Ephesians is another pretty general letter that perhaps Paul wrote not only to the church at Ephesus, but to other churches in that uh, general area of Asia Minor, as it was called in Paul's day, um, focusing again on the, the sufficiency of Christ who has brought fulfillment. Here's another big one, Philippians. Yeah, Philippians, a uh, very interesting book that uh, Paul wrote to the Philippian church, obviously. Uh, they had sent him a gift. Uh, Paul was in prison, had some tough circumstances he was facing, uh, so the Philippians had sent a gift to, to help him. Uh, and one of the great themes of Philippians, of course, is the, is the example of Christ. Philippians 2, that great passage about how we're to have the mind of Christ who uh, emptied himself on our behalf. First Timothy. Uh, another letter, uh, more personal in nature, as the name suggests. Timothy was one of Paul's close co-workers, uh, and Timothy is working in Ephesus uh, uh, and uh, has some problems he's facing there. Uh, again, false teaching is one of them. So Paul writes to him to uh, help him deal with some of the issues that have arisen in the church there. Tell us about Titus. Yeah, Titus, another co-worker of Paul, probably written about the same time as First uh, Timothy to another part of the Mediterranean world, where, again, you have Titus who's trying to establish churches that he and Paul uh, have uh, initially founded. Second Timothy. Uh, yeah, another very personal note. This is the last letter Paul wrote. Clearly, he's back in prison. Clearly, he expects to be executed soon by the Roman authorities, and so it's kind of the last uh, word and testament of Paul to his friend and co-worker uh, Timothy, encouraging Timothy to, to hold on to his faith and to be a faithful minister of the gospel. Doug Moo is our guest. Doug, do you think uh, Paul wrote uh, the book of Hebrews? I don't think so, no. I have it included in the book. Um, most uh, contemporary scholars agree that Paul did not write Hebrews. Uh, some in the early church believed he did, of course, um, but that's, again, a view that's not very widely held anymore. Just some things that, that the author of Hebrews says uh, that just do not uh, jibe with Pauline authorship. And so that debate goes on. Uh, who wrote the book of Hebrews and why, after that, that long, powerful letter, why wouldn't you want your name linked to it? <laughs> yeah, those are good questions. Uh, questions to ask, and we just don't have any good answers, I'm afraid. Um, can you picture, Doug, um, Paul actually doing the writing? Where where would, where would he be sitting, and what is he writing on? And and, and uh, they didn't have ballpoint pens back then. I mean, what was he, <laughs> how did he do you know, it? Not even typewriters or computers, obviously. Uh, most of the letters of Paul would have been dictated to a scribe. Um, 
papyrus that they wrote out in those days was very expensive, and so generally you would uh, have a trained scribe who could write clearly, legibly, and very small print uh, so you could conserve papyrus. And that uh, person that was called an amanuensis in those days uh, would copy down what Paul would be orally dictating to the person. And then what happened? How was the how was the letter delivered? Yeah, then you'll you'll usually try to find somebody either who was traveling to that area on business um, and send the letter with them, or maybe sometimes uh, Paul would send one of his co-workers specifically and deliberately to carry the, the letter to its destination. Uh, that person would carry the letter, and then uh, in front of the church, he would stand up and read the letter. Them. That's how the message would have been transmitted to them. And then, how was the letter preserved? What happened then? It was read. Now, what happened? You know, there's a big hole there in our understanding. I don't think we really know all the details. I think the most important thing to say, however, is that God was Himself providentially preserving those letters He wanted to be included in the canon of Scripture. Uh, so we. We don't know for sure you know, from a human standpoint exactly what happened. We can imagine churches saying, oh, we, this is a letter from Paul that's so moving and beautiful, so significant for us, we need to preserve it, let's, let's keep it somewhere. Uh, something like that probably happened. But again, I think the most important thing is to see how God was himself providentially ordering things so that these particular books would be preserved and included in the canon, ultimately, for us to read and profit from. Doug, do you think Paul wrote a whole bunch of other letters that are stuck out in a cave somewhere that we might uncover? <laughs> well, I think he probably did write other letters than we have. Uh, he refers to one in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, for instance. At the end of Colossians, he talks about a letter to the Laodiceans. So I think there's evidence within Paul's own letters that he did write others, um, and who knows whether they'll ultimately be discovered or not. In my view, even if we discovered a letter and could document it as being authentic, it still won't be part of the canon, because the canon is something the Church uh, decided on early uh, in the history of the Christian era, and I don't think that there's any possibility of adding books now to the canon. Doug, what do you think it would be like if— uh, the Apostle Paul was in Wheaton, College, in Wheaton, Illinois today, and, and you could have lunch with him and maybe one or two other of your professors. What do you think that lunch would be like? <laughs> uh, I think it would be way too short for any of us. <laughs> There's so many things we'd like to ask Paul to clarify, you know, things that he wrote about. You know, there are a number of places in the letters where he says things like, now you remember what I told you when I was with you. And, of course, as we read the letter now, we say, but Paul, we weren't there. What did you say? Uh, and so to, to try to fill in some of those gaps would be a wonderful thing to be able to do. Do you think Paul, do you think Paul knew these letters would, uh, would last and impact people forever? Um, that, that's a great question to ask, uh, actually. I, I think, you know, again, there are places in the letters where Paul does seem to hint at the kind of authority he has, uh, where he suggests his letters might be on a par with the Old Testament scriptures. Um, so I think there are kind of hints of that here and there, but I doubt that that was very much on Paul's mind. I think he was very much focused on the issue right in front of him, trying to 
You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5. Don't worry. Now, here's Pat. Pat Williams here. His book, Saturday Power Hour. You're listening, of course, to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Our guest is uh, the new AM 990 in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word. Theology of Paul. And you write about the center of the new realm and the inauguration of the new realm. Uh, What's that all about? Yeah, this, the third part of the book is where I'm trying to synthesize Paul's thought to kind of bring his various letters together uh, and look at the, the key themes that Paul talks about a lot. And early on, it seemed to me that the idea of a new realm was a kind of helpful organizing idea, that what Paul is fundamentally talking about with the coming of Christ is that God has introduced into the world a new realm, There's the old realm of sin and death, uh, has now been matched and superseded by a new realm of, of, of life uh, and salvation, where Christ is at the center of that, hence the center of the new realm uh, I talk about as Christ himself. Uh, so I use that as the organizing principle, again, to talk about the kind of themes that Paul uh, uses throughout the letters. Doug, <clears throat> what happened to Paul uh, at the end of his life? Uh, we don't have any New Testament evidence for that, of course. As I, uh, Second Timothy is a letter where Paul clearly is anticipating he's going to be executed soon. And early church tradition has it that he, along with the apostle Peter, were both executed under the persecution of the Roman emperor Nero sometime in the mid-60s. What was the relationship like between Paul and Peter? Uh, sometimes in Christian history, there are people who want to really drive a wedge between them, as if Peter and Paul were kind of opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of their theology. But but actually, the evidence we have suggests that they, they were very close. They uh, accepted each other. Galatians 2 talks about a meeting in Jerusalem where they thrashed things out. Um, so I think Paul and Peter had slightly different perspectives, different backgrounds, but on the whole, they were very, very uh, encouraging of each other, recognizing that each was preaching the gospel in their own sphere. But yet Peter had been with Jesus, of course. Paul hadn't. Uh, I wonder if that created a little uh, tension. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure it created tension between them. Mm-hmm. Paul, of course, is very insistent that although he wasn't one of the original twelve, you know, Christ appeared to him on the Damascus Road so that his uh, authority as an apostle is based on Christ's appearance to him, which he considers to be just as authoritative as any of the original Twelve. Um, but I think some of the false teachers in the early Church probably played on that, saying, you know, Peter, he was one of the original guys. We should be following him. Don't listen to what Paul is saying. And again, we hear Paul having to deal with that kind of objection to his own authority in a lot, in a number of places. Doug, if you had been a spectator on the Damascus Road, uh, how would you describe what you saw there? You know, uh, the way Paul talks about that experience in the book of Acts, he mentions it in a couple of his speeches in the book of Acts, suggests that uh, the people with Paul maybe would not have seen everything that Paul saw, that mm. God you know, made a special revelation to him, 
and that uh, some of the people with them would have sensed that something quite interesting was going on, but, but probably didn't have the same access to the experience that Paul did. Where do you think, uh, what do you think Paul was like as a youngster? Have you ever pictured Paul as a teenager? Do you think he was a handful? Uh, do we know anything about his parents? <laughs> we, 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 we know he was raised in a very strict Jewish household. He calls himself uh, Hebrew of Hebrews in Philippians 3, for instance, meaning someone who was strongly Jewish, raised by strongly Jewish parents. Uh, yeah, to, to think about Paul as a teenager is rather a mind-blowing exercise, <laughs> I think. I've never done that. I'm not, not quite sure what to think of that. Uh, I wonder what, what it would be like if he was a student in one of your classes. Uh, uh, I get the feeling he'd, he'd have been intense. He'd have been really locked uh, in. I think he would have been very intense indeed, and uh, probably embarrassing to me when he would ask me all sorts of things I, I, I wouldn't be able to answer. Uh, what kind of what kind of a reader was he? A reader? Yeah, of of of. I guess you would call them books back then. Was he? Would you call him a bookworm? Would you call him uh, just uh, had an intense desire to learn? Was he a passionate yeah, well, reader of what? I, I, I think he certainly had a very strong desire to learn. You can you can tell that from his knowledge of a lot of different things. He uses words and concepts that would have been well-known in the Greco-Roman world of his day, the culture of his day, and of course, he knows the Scriptures extremely well. That's what certainly emerges mm -hmm. from the letters of Paul. He is just so at home in the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, he knows them in a way that few of us today would, would be able to approach, I think. Doug, uh, give us... Um... Give us three life lessons that we can take from Paul and apply to our own lives. Oh, three. Well, uh, certainly uh, one is uh, Paul's uh, constant reference to Christians being in Christ. So his favorite phrase, and I think it reminds us that for Paul to be a Christian is to be in this all-enveloping experience of Christ, that the, he touches every part of our lives. No part of our lives is to be untouched by Christ. So I think that's one of the main things Paul would certainly want to remind us about. Uh, a second he would want to remind us about is the, the, the overall principle of grace, that what we have is a gift from God, and that it ultimately rests on God's provision for us in Christ, not on our own efforts. Uh, third, though, he would also I think, want to say, yes, you, you have to realize that what God is doing for you is a gift from him. Uh, your status with God, your salvation now and in the last day is something God is doing for you as a gift. Yet you need to respond. You need to be a person who is a serious Jesus follower in this life, uh, trying to bring uh, all thoughts and all actions into captivity to Christ. That's powerful. That's powerful. Uh, Doug, uh, tell me about Wheaton College. Yes, Wheaton College is uh, a Christian liberal arts school. Uh, we have about 2,400 undergraduate students. We have a thriving graduate school with three to 400 students there as well with both master's and doctoral level programs. A great place to, to learn, to study, to rub shoulders both with fellow students who know, know Christ and love him, and with faculty uh, who love Christ and are keen to, to uh, talk about the reality of Christ in various ways in the lives of students. 
Uh, can you picture Billy Graham uh, walking on the campus? <laughs> it's, it's amazing, yeah. Uh, of course, uh, he was a student there, met his wife there. Uh, a lot of Billy Graham stuff around the the, 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 the campus there. and Yeah, kind of interesting to think of him as a student there, isn't it? Tell me the uh, tell me what the average student at Wheaton is like, and what what are their goals? What do they want to do with their lives? Um, most of our students come to us with a, a desire to serve Christ in whatever role that God has assigned them. So most of our students are not intending to go into ministry. Uh, at least undergrad students. The undergrads are, are are often you know looking to become lawyers or scientists or doctors. Uh, but they want to become lawyers or scientists or doctors who know Scripture well, who know theology well, who can bring uh, their Christian faith in, into the reality of their professions and lives. Doug, I want you to speak here in the closing minute uh, to people who may be struggling in how to get in and uh, really read the Bible properly and, and study it well. Where, where do you encourage them to start? Uh, what's the first step? You know, I think it's it's uh, the, the old saying, "Taste and see that the, 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 the Lord is good." Uh, from First uh, Peter, which I'm applying here to Scripture. Uh, I think the, the simplest thing to do is find a, a good, accurate, readable version of the Bible, uh, and then just begin to read. And I think the more one reads, the more one enjoys reading. I think Scripture can be sort of off-putting to people at first sometimes, but when you start to read it and uh, get into it. I think it's just kind of like a snowball rolling downhill. It gets easier and easier and more and more fascinating. Uh, Doug Moo's book, A Theology of Paul and His Letters. My latest book is out. It's called Revolutionary Leadership. And we write about the key leaders during the Revolutionary War period and how they led and what we can learn about leadership from them. Uh, Ravel is the publisher. Revolutionary Leadership. Uh, Check it out while you're checking out Doug Moo's book. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. Now, here's Pat. Uh, Douglas Moo, our guest in that first segment uh, at Wheaton College, talking about his book, A Theology of Paul and His Letters, The Gift of the New Realm in Christ. I'm very pleased that uh, Ray Comfort can join us. He's uh, based out of Southern California. I've always enjoyed his writing, his uh, wit, sense of humor, and his uh, uh, challenge to all Christians. Ray, first of all, welcome, and... uh, I'm glad you're back in Orlando. How are you doing? In Orlando? Yeah, it's good to be with you via radio. That's right. That's thank, right. You, thank you for having me on your program, Pat. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ray. Uh, Ray's new book is out, How to Be Free from the Fear of Death. Boy, what a, what a book. It's, it's powerful. Uh, why was it important, Ray, to write it? Well, it came because, um, because of the pandemic. We we were aware that people were suddenly confronted with their own mortality. I mean, most people don't talk about their fear of death. Everyone has it according to Scripture. Hebrews 2, verse 14 and 15 says they're tormented by the fear of death, haunted by it all their lifetime. It's something we don't, we don't share with other people, but um, this pandemic has sure 
pushed it right into their face. And so they're thinking about their mortality, they're thinking about their loved ones. And we produced a little booklet, a little uh, like a 12-page booklet called How to Be Free from the Fear of Death. And if we sell through our ministry, you know, 10,000 booklets in about two months, that's very good. This sold about 180,000 in the first two months when it came out. Hardly publicized it. And when I gave my first little booklet out, I was a little apprehensive, but people would grab it. It's like, uh, it's like, how could anybody know that I'm fearful of dying? So I told my publishers, one of my publishers, about it, and they said, let's do a book. And so we're delighted to have a book we can give to people that addresses their fear of death. As I said, something that people don't talk about, but they think about all the time. Ray, your first chapter is called The Ultimate Intrusion. Uh, what are you writing there? Well, when I was a non-Christian, my uh, my brother, seven years old, took me to see a film called The Scarlet Pimpernel, a very famous old movie, and it, and it showed the French Revolution and it had all these old hags, just ugly-looking witchy ladies sitting around the guillotine, and when people's heads were chopped off, they would knit another stitch onto their scarves and give a cackle, and their scarves were very, very long. And as a seven-year-old, that sent my eyes like saucers, and I was horrified by the fear of death. And, uh, and, and I remember thinking, how terrible it would be to be waiting around to be executed, to be in a holding cell. And yet that is the plight of humanity. We've got a large holding cell, nice blue roof, good air conditioning, uh, good lighting, but this life, with all its pleasures and pains, is a holding cell because of, we've got an appointment with death. And so that's, that's the ultimate intrusion. Uh, we, we can ski, we can surf, we can spend and have parties and have a great time, and we can enjoy um, legitimate pleasures, but we're waiting for this unwelcome guest, this what the world calls the grim reaper, to come to us. And so that's what the first chapter is about. It's the uh, the ultimate intrusion. Uh, if we could do anything uh, to to put it off, we will. And yet, uh, as Christians, we have the greatest news this world could ever hope to hear, and that is that Jesus Christ has, past tense, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So we have good news. Uh, to call the Bible good news, which is called the gospel good news, is, uh, is, um, just doesn't cut the mustard. It's, not, it's the ultimate, wonderful news humanity could ever, ever hope to hear. Ray Comfort is our guest, author of the book, How to Be Free from the Fear of Death. Ray, you then move to Chapter 2. It's called Surely Genesis is a Myth. Uh, what's that mean? Well, you're making me rephrase my book. What did I mean? Well, I mean that if, if the world mocks the whole thought of God speaking the world into existence, um, surely no one can seriously, in a modern age, Look at Genesis and say, Genesis and say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Surely there was a big bang, and it was just over billions of years, and that's the, that's the reason. Um, and yeah, you take God out of the equation, and you're stuck with the absolute foolishness of this. And this is how I make atheists backslide, and I don't say that in a in a proud way because a child can do it. If you've got someone who says I'm an atheist, I don't believe in the existence of God. Just ask him this one question. Say, do you really believe the scientific impossibility that nothing created everything? 
<laughs> because that's what an atheist defaults to. If there's no God, then everything, flowers and birds and trees and sun, the moon, the stars, chickens, uh, babies, everything is a result of not coming from nothing, but of nothing being the prime mover. Nothing created all this incredible creation around us, which is scientifically ludicrous. And so Genesis, which is thought to be an absolute myth, uh, is the biblical and the, not only biblical, but the scientific explanation of how things came to pass. You know, one thing I'm guilty of as a male is I get a, a product, and I do it all the time. Women don't seem to do this. I get a product in the mail, and I try and put it together myself before I read the instructions. I think, I can do this. And it's only when I'm left with nuts and bolts left over that I look at the instruction book. And I say, oh, this was so simple. And what humanity's done with God's instruction book, the Bible, is try to do, put the clients together themselves. And we've got an absolute mess in every sphere of society. No matter where you look, it's an absolute mess, and it comes back to the simplicity of that we've failed to look at the instruction book, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now I want you to get to topic three, the Bible and the scientific method. Yeah, the scientific method is, has to be uh, observed um, and uh, tested and proven. And that just can't be done with a theory of evolution, but it can be done with the Bible. You can put the Bible to the test, not put God to the test. And it's as simple as this. If I had a belief that a heater was hot, okay, I'm looking at this heater, I believe intellectually it's hot. It looks hot. And uh, I have an intellectual belief that it is hot. But then if I reach out my hand and I touch the heater bar with my hand, <laughs> I stop believing it's hot. I now know it's hot. I've moved out of the realm of belief into the realm of personal experience. And that's the test. That's the gauntlet we throw down to the skeptic. We're not telling you to believe in God's existence because you already have that. The book of Romans tells us the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. That if the, the, the heavens declare the glory of God every time a an atheist or anyone looks at the sky, a sunrise or a sunset or those big clouds, they declare God's glory. So every, every man has light that God's given to him. We're not trying to talk people into believing in God's existence. We want them to have sins forgiven. We want them to come to Christ so that they can be saved from a very real hell and so that they can be washed clean of their sins. And the way to do that is to reach out and touch the heater bar. The Bible says, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. That's our agenda. That's what we're told by Jesus to preach, because that's what converts people through the power of God. The gospel changes the man who loves his sin into loving righteousness, who loves darkness to loving the light. That's our personal reach out and touch the heater bar. Pat, when I became a Christian, the second I was born again, I became pro-life, pro-marriage, uh, one man, one woman, anti-adultery, anti-fornication, anti-blasphemy, anti-stealing, anything that was on God's heart suddenly was on my heart. Why? Because God promises when we're born again, made new creatures in Christ, that he will take his law and write it upon our hearts and cause us to walk in his statutes. So anyone who's skeptical about God's existence or doesn't believe the gospel, get on your knees Say, God, I've sinned against you. I've looked at women with lust and committed adultery in my heart. I've hated people and been a murderer in your eyes. 
I'm fearful of judgment day because I've lied and stolen. I've broken your law, even though you gave me a commandment. God, forgive me. I put my faith in Jesus this day as my sin bearer, and you'll come to know God. You'll touch the heat of bar and move out of the realm of just an intellectual belief into the realm of personal experience. My guest, and boy, he's a good one, isn't he? Ray Comfort. Uh, we're talking about his book, How to Be Free from the Fear of Death. And uh, <clears throat> folks, we're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando. I just want to remind you, go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com, orlandodreamers.com. Just check in and uh, tell us your feelings. What, what do you think? Uh, we're working at it, and uh, we need to hear from you. More with Ray Comfort right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Ray Comfort is our guest, uh, talking about his book, How to Be Free from the Fear of Death. Ray, uh, uh, topic number four, you call it the heart of the issue. Uh, Fill us in. Well, the heart of the issue isn't uh, skepticism. Often people say, I just find it so hard to believe in God's existence, or uh, I find it so hard to trust the Bible. What it comes back down to is that we love our sins. I, I, I talk to people and uh, a lot, and I'll say to them, you have trouble believing God? Yeah, what is suffering? There's all this. It's just, I just find it very, very hard. And so I move from their intellect to the conscience. This is what Jesus did in Mark 10, verse 17. Remember, the rich young ruler came running to Jesus and said, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus didn't even address his question directly. Firstly, he reproved the man for his understanding of the word good. He says, Good master. Most people, if you ask them if they're a good person, will say, yeah, I'm a really good person, because they don't understand that good in God's eyes means moral perfection and thought, word, and indeed, and only God is good. So Jesus reproved him for his understanding of the word good, and then he said, you know the commandments. That is a very strange thing to do when we look at modern evangelism. Why did Jesus point him to the commandments? Well, because the Bible says, by the law, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is the knowledge of sin. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans said, I had not known sin but by the law. And so Jesus pointed to those commandments because he knew, obviously, that his conscience would condemn him. And that's exactly what happens when you learn to do what Jesus did and move from the intellect to the conscience. And the reason you move from the intellect is because Romans 8 verse 7 says the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. In other words, the natural mind of man is in a place of hostility towards God. And you can see this in the fact that even though God gave them life and his name is holy, they substitute his name for a filth word beginning with S to express disgust. At the thumb of the hammer, they may say that filth word to say how they feel and express what's going on in their heart or they may substitute the name of Jesus Christ in its place, or the name of God in its place. That's called blasphemy, so serious is punishable by death in the Old Testament. And so that shows the enmity that's there. So if you want to reason with a sinner, you've got to move away from that enmity, that carnal mind that 
that uh, fights against God and address the conscience, the work of the law which is written upon his heart, the conscience which bears witness. So if you say to someone, what do you think of the Bible? Oh, I think it's full of rah, rah, blah, blah. You've got the intellect. That's, uh, that's the enmity. But if you say, do you think you're a good person? They say yes. So how many lies do you think you've told? Now you're dealing in the area of the conscience. And the conscience will be an ally that will work with you. It will accuse of sin from the inner heart. It's the judge on the courtroom of the mind of the sinner. And it will accuse him of sin. So that's the heart of the issue. And that's what you've got to go to if you want to bring people to the Savior. You've got to imitate Jesus. Do what Paul did in Romans chapter 2. You who say you shall not steal, do you steal? You who say you shall not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? That's biblical evangelism, and that's what the church has forsaken in the last 40 or 50 years. Now, Ray Comfort, tell us about a rich man's big mistake, topic number five. Well, the rich man's big mistake was that he thought that he could get to heaven by being good. That's the delusion. What they don't realize, the lost, is that the leap they're trying to make is not a little five-foot leap. It's wider than the widest part of the Grand Canyon. If you study all religions, almost all of them have exactly one thing in common, and that is they are works righteousness religions. And it comes back to the image of God. If you've got an erroneous image of God and you think God is a benevolent father figure, and he's kind and sweet and nice, then you'll think you'll have a chance of being good enough to make it to heaven. But when you look at the biblical revelation of God given to us in Scripture, you'll see that God isn't nice and kind and good only. He is just and holy and righteous. In fact, Jesus brought perspective to the character and nature of God by saying this, Fear not him who has power to kill your body and afterwards do no more, but fear him who has power to kill your body and cast your soul into hell. Now think what Jesus just said. You're lying in bed one night and you hear a creak from your door, bedroom door, and you look up and there's a man coming coming to you in the semi-darkness with a glittering, sharp, nine-inch blade and he's going to plunge it into your chest. You break into a sweat, horror grips your heart like you've never experienced before. But Jesus said, oh, don't fear him. Fear not him who has power to kill your body and afterwards do no more. But then he said, fear God who has power to kill your body and cast your soul into hell. That's the fear of the Lord, and that's what the scriptures speak of, right throughout the book of Proverbs and the book of Psalms, saying the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and through the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. And no one is going to let go of their sins when they've got a wrong view of God's nature and character. So what we've got to do as Christians is do what? Paul did and what Jesus did, preach the truth in love. Tell them that God is to be feared. And Pat, quite seriously, I'd rather fall on the face of the sun than fall into the hands of the living God. The Bible says it's a fearful thing. And when people tremble, they'll do what David did when Nathan reproved him. They'll get before God and say, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies blot out my transgressions against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That'll produce a genuine conversion. That's what this nation needs. Now, Ray, uh, let's move to Solomon's conclusion. What's that about? Yeah, Solomon uh, 
wisest man to ever live outside of Jesus, uh, with all his proverbs and all his pleasures and wealth. I mean, you can put Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos together and combine their wealth, and it doesn't come up to what Solomon had. He had tribute paid to him in gold, tons of gold. And according to uh, those who have figured it out, he was more wealthy than those two guys put together. And yet, with all his wealth and all his wives, he had a thousand wives, which is mind-boggling. There must have been concubine uh, political wives. Um, He came to this conclusion. He said, because of death, vanity, vanity, all his vanity, it's like chasing the wind. You know, you're a wonderful sportsman, and I think you'll agree with this, even though it will sound funny at first. I was in Australia, uh, must have been 40 years ago, and I was preaching, and suddenly an elderly man stood up and walked towards the pulpit. And I thought, what's going on here? And he came right up to the platform. He stepped behind the pulpit. I stepped back because he had such a grim look on his face. He looked at the congregation, and he said with a trembling voice and trembling hands, when I was a young man, I gave myself to sport. Now, there's nothing wrong with sport, but I knew exactly what he was saying. He neglected God. He forgot all about God and just gave himself to the pleasure of sport. Um, I've forgotten his name, but there was a cricketer, a famous cricketer, most people don't know. He said, it's one life that will soon be passed. Only what is done for God will last. Uh, he, he became a national figure back in England uh, when he wrote those words, and he gave himself to sport but he didn't forget God. And that's the conclusion that Solomon came to. He said, remember this, God is going to bring every work to judgment, including every secret thing, whether it is good or evil. That's why we need to trust in the Savior, because there's going to be what the Bible calls the great and terrible day of the Lord. When every idle word a man speaks, he'll give an account thereof on that day of judgment. That's why we need a Savior. Ray Comfort is our guest. He's in Southern California talking about his book, How to Be Free from the Fear of Death. Topic seven, Ray, when God doesn't answer. Tell us more. Yeah, there's there's times that people are uh, very disillusioned because you pray for Aunt Martha, who's got some terrible disease, and she dies. And she was 108, but that has much to do with it. But often people get disillusioned with God, because they don't realize that with anyone that you want to speak to that's in a place of authority, there's a certain etiquette. You can't just say that, I want to talk to the Queen of England. Here's my cell number. You tell her to give me a call. It's not going to happen. If you want to talk to the Queen, you've got to go through a lot of procedure. You might have to change clothes. You might have to learn to bow a little bit when she comes into a room, whatever. And when you come to God, it's not a matter of clicking your fingers and saying, you're my divine butler. You do what I tell you to do when I click my fingers doesn't work like that. Bible says, my iniquities are made of separation between me and God. The scriptures say that, that if I have iniquity or sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And so the way to get the ear of God is to realize he resists the proud. He will resist you, the Bible says, and gives grace to the humble. So the first thing you've got to do is humble yourself if you want God to hear your prayers. Admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you've been in rebellion. You're not the cat's whiskers, that you've done things that are wrong. And then come with a contrite heart. Contrition is, is, is being sorry for your sins. That's what a judge looks for in a court of law. 
you go on the internet and you can find videos of guys who have had their sentences doubled because they gave a smart answer to a judge when he said something to them instead of having a humble, contrite heart. The judge is looking for sorrow for the crime. <clears throat> if he spots that, he'll perhaps reduce the sentence. But if there's proud and arrogant, pride and arrogance, the judge will have, won't even want to listen to what he says. It's exactly the same with God. So God always answers prayer. Uh, sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, sometimes... Uh, he, he just says, you haven't come through the right means. And the way to have a hotline with God is to realize there's one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus, have a humble, contrite heart. God will answer your prayers, but he may not answer them the way you think that he should. You know, Mary and Martha told Jesus to come and raise up Lazarus from the sickbed. Jesus stayed where he was. Two more days, let him die. He didn't answer their prayer. He did exceeding abundantly far above all they could ask or think by raising him from the dead. So prayer doesn't come uh, to us in the way we think God should answer it, but he is always faithful to those that come with a humble and contrite heart. Now, Ray, <clears throat> we have uh, time to get to topic number eight. Yeah, you call it the fight for faith. What's that mean? You know, um, we we... We're often confused between trust in God and belief in God. I ask a lot of people, is believing God the same as having faith in God? And they say, yes, it is. I say, do you have faith in God? They say, no, not really. I don't. I say, what's your name? And he says, oh, the name's Fred. I say, I don't believe that, Fred. Where do you live? He says, such and such a street. I say, oh, I don't believe that either. Now, how does that make you feel? He says, really bad. I'll I'll tell you why it makes you feel bad. If I, don't, if I don't have faith in you... It means I think you're not worth trusting. You're devious. You're a liar. That's what my insinuation is if I refuse to have faith in you. That's the greatest insult you can pay to any other human being. Try it with your your wife or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or any friend. Just say, I I have trouble having faith in you. You're not going to have that friendship. And so if mere man is insulted by a lack of faith, how much more do we insult God by lack of trust in his promises? The Bible says, he that believes not God has made him a liar. It says, let none of you depart from the living God through an evil heart of unbelief. And so if you say, I have trouble having faith in God, you're insulting it. You won't get anywhere. Even the nations uh, uh, work on faith. If, you, if America doesn't trust the Russian leadership, Russian leadership nothing's going to happen. Everything comes back to trust in this life. We trust our banks. We trust our dentists. We trust our doctors. We trust our surgeons. We even trust some politicians. We trust our pilots with our lives. So if we can have faith in all these things that can let us down, how much more should we have faith in God and unshakable trust in Him? Because uh, the Bible says He is faithfully promised. Everything we believe is based on this foundation. It's impossible for God to lie. He is without sin. He cannot lie. That means you can throw yourself blindfolded and without reserve into every promise God has made. My guest has been Ray Comfort. Ray, it's so always good to catch up with you. Uh, thank you for this latest book you've written. I've uh, gotten a lot out of it. And, uh, oh, thank you. So glad that we could chat. And uh, keep up what you're doing. You make, you're, you're a difference maker. Thank you so much, brother. God bless you. Ray Comfort, uh, get the book, folks. It's it's a must read. That's my take on it. How to be free from the fear of death. It's a nice little 
a pocket-sized book almost, and uh, you're going to get a lot out of it. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And speaking of books, uh, my latest book is out. It's called Revolutionary Leadership. And we go back to the Revolutionary War period. And we study 25 different leaders, men and women, some famous, some not so famous, but they all played a key role in the the Revolutionary War, uh, that dramatic period when this country came into being. I think you'll enjoy it. Revolutionary leadership. Uh, We are back next weekend for more here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, We look forward to seeing you then. Have a terrific week ahead. And stay tuned to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing. The new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.